My goal this morning is to answer the question, why is the incarnate word glorious? That's my goal this morning. Why is the incarnate word glorious? Of course, there are plenty of ways that we can answer this question. I'm going to propose four of them. So I'm going to give you four reasons why the incarnate word is glorious. But before we do that, uh, before we see why the incarnate word is glorious, we have to address this most concise statement on the incarnation that is found in the Bible, and that's the statement, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14 there in chapter 1. I suppose even before that, we have to ask the question or explain, what does the word incarnate even mean? It's not a word that we use very often. If someone was in the world and they weren't in the church and we said that word, they might go, they might not know what that word means or what we mean by that. And so I think it's maybe helpful to just unpack that word a little bit. Of course, if you know Spanish, you know that the word carne means flesh, meat, flesh, right? You're probably familiar with that. You've probably eaten carne asada. I know I have. Many of you have. Uh, Which is grilled meat or grilled flesh, depending on the context. Therefore, when we speak of the incarnation or the glory of the incarnate word, we are speaking about an action in which the logos or the word took on flesh. That's what we're talking about here. He became a man. That's what the incarnation is. When we speak of the incarnation, we are speaking about the humanity of Christ, the humanity of Jesus. Now, this probably sounds somewhat like a mystery, and it is a mystery. We should rightly consider the incarnation the most amazing of all paradoxes. The one who was in the beginning became The one who was divine became flesh, and that flesh, it says, dwelt among us. These are very high and lofty realities. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, he confesses it. He says, great indeed, we confess, is this mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He accounts it a mystery of godliness. Paul does. It's a conundrum. That the word did not cease to be what it was before, but it became what it was not before, namely flesh. It is a mystery, a conundrum, paradox. The logos, the word, became a real man, a whole man, and never without ceasing to be himself. That's a critical point. In the incarnation or enfleshment, as I like to say, the enfleshment of the word, the divine word, forever took on an entirely separate nature, the nature of a man. He was not at once God, then man. Rather, he was God and at once became the God-man. One being with two natures. If you were to go to a whiteboard and you were to write all the characteristics of God on one side and you were to write all the characteristics of man on the other side, You could circle both of them and say, that's Jesus. The description of the incarnation incarnation is, at least the way that John describes it, is almost offensive to us. He writes, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. It's a staggering statement. You probably know this word flesh is oftentimes used to describe sinful flesh. 
We're probably most familiar with that use of the word, sarks, sinful flesh. Paul says in Romans 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh, same word, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, thankfully, the word has a broader meaning. It could simply refer to our physical flesh, and that's what John is saying here. The author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus had all the characteristics of a man. He was in the flesh, yet, Hebrews 4.15 says, he was without sin, yet without sin. I hope you can see how mysterious, how enigmatic the incarnation is. And as puzzling as it is, Notice that John doesn't search out some metaphysical, theoretical, conceptual, philosophical, transcendental, or overly academic explanation for the incarnation. He doesn't pursue any of those things. He is straight to the point. And the Word became flesh. I like this quote from Lenski. He says, The marvel remains that this great mystery should be expressed by the evangelist, by John, In such few words, a mystery on which the greatest minds have spent their most intense efforts. Here, inspiration becomes so tangible that one wonders why all eyes do not recognize its presence. No uninspired pen could ever have set the words, and the word became flesh. And not only that, but, as Godot said, he was a pilgrim among his pilgrim people. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. The sense behind these words is something like to pitch a tent, to set up a tent. And so it's very likely this phrase would have reminded the Hebrew readers of the tabernacle. You've probably heard that explanation at some point in your Christian life, and it's, it's accurate. John probably wants us to recall God's presence in the tabernacle, in the, te- in the temple, and also in those pre-incarnate appearances of Christ that happened in the Old Testament. It was in these places that God's glory was on display, which is why John says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Hebrew readers might recall Israel's exodus from Egypt, Exodus 16.10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Exodus 24, 16, in the giving of the law, or after the giving of the law, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it, covered the whole mountain for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. It was this glory of God that appeared there. It dwelt on the mountain. It tabernacled. On the mountain. Specifically with regard to the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, Exodus. Specifically with regard to the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There was no mistaking Israel in the wilderness because there was this giant cloud on the ground that covered the tabernacle. And so we remember when that moved, that was a signal to the people that they were moving. So this great pillar was going to the sky of God's glory, directing them and guiding their path during that time. But not only at that time, but also after they had actually built the temple as well, you see God's glory there in 1 Kings 8.11. So, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So God's Shekinah glory, His glory was also in the temple. 
as well. There's that great passage in Exodus, I say great, uh, humbling passages, so to speak, that God's glory leaves the temple before the destruction. What all of these verses teach us is that there were special times in Israel's history when the visible presence of God's glory was manifest. It was on display. And what John is saying in verse 14 is this, that in the incarnation, God's glory, that same glory, has been manifest. It's touched down again. Therefore, to see Jesus is to see what? To see the glory of God. To see Jesus is to see the glory of God. Now, when you think of the glory of God, what do you think of? What, what comes to mind when you think of God's glory? Probably lots of different things. Maybe it's abstract. Maybe it's a little confusing. Rightfully so. Here's a technical definition for the analytical bunch. God's glory refers to the consummate beauty of the totality of his perfections. The consummate beauty of the totality of his perfections. That's God's glory, according to systematic theology. God's glory is the sum total of all that he is on display. For the less analytical, God's glory is something like meticulously writing all that God is on a thousand flakes of gold and taking those gold flakes and throwing them up into the air. To, to, to look at their glimmer. That's kind of an illustration for, for the glory of God. John Piper has described, God, described God's glory as the going public of his infinite worth. For his infinite worth to go public. If the holiness of God is the infinite worth of God, then the glory of God is the splendor or brightness or public display of that worth. You probably heard of PDA. This is PDG, right? Public display of glory. Look, I have a high school student. Okay. What the Apostle John is saying is that in Jesus, we see the infinite worth and brightness and splendor of God's glory. In Jesus. And so it's right for John to call him an only son. And the idea of only is unique. He's a very, very unique son. There's no other son so unique, so glorious. So, I hope you understand that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what John is saying in verse 14. That his very life broadcasts God's worth in all of its splendor. And that Jesus is in fact the one and only unique son of God. And so saying that, I want to give you four reasons why, if that, all that wasn't enough. I want to give you four reasons why he is glorious from this text. Four reasons why the incarnate word is glorious. By the way, I apologize for not having slides the last two weeks. Um, hopefully we'll have that kind of repaired. I know that can be helpful for, for many of you. And so next week you should expect some of those slides. So, look at the end of verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And so, here's my first reason, the first reason why the incarnate Word is glorious. Number one, He is full of grace and truth. 
To say that he is full of grace and truth means that all that was in him and shown forth from him was grace and truth. You might say there's no half measure, no fraction, but perfect completeness in every thought, word, and action. Jesus Christ is the full expression of God's grace. Jesus Christ is the full expression of God's truth. If you and I were to go on a trek to discover the highest illustration of grace, our search is over when we come to Jesus. If you and I long to find solutions to the greatest and most complex questions of the ages, the answer to such questions are found when we come to Jesus. No doubt grace and truth are some of the greatest Christian words. To speak of grace is, of course, to speak of unmerited favor. That's how we like to define grace, unmerited favor. Grace always has the idea of something that cannot be earned, something that cannot be won, something that cannot be achieved. It's always acquired or acquainted, excuse me, with a gift. And it's Jesus who is full of this quality, full of grace. As it relates to our position before God, the subject of God's grace underscores the fact that our sin has set us drifting away from God. We realize that. We were, as Paul says, separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2, 12. It's only when the grace of God appeared, Titus 3, 4, and 5, that he saved us, not because of works done in the flesh, but according to his own mercy, he saved us. In this way, to speak of grace is to emphasize both the poverty of man and the glorious nature of God's limitless kindness. All this is true, yet grace has a separate sense as well, and it's a sense that we don't often talk about in the church. Grace carries the idea of beauty. Maybe even a word that we might use would be charm. That's also a part of this word. It describes something that brings joy, winsomeness. It's right, friends, for us to see God as mighty and majestic and with the power to crush all opposition and to squelch any rebellion. All of that is true, but it's just as right to acknowledge the beauty and loveliness of Jesus. I've chosen only one verse, Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to acquire in his temple. Jesus is full of grace, unmerited favor, beauty. All of these are around and surround the idea of grace, but he's also equally full of truth, grace and truth. It's a very important word for John, truth. We're going to see that word come up over and over again as we study this book. The meaning is simple. There's not much explanation behind the word truth. We know what truth is. It's the opposite of falsehood. It's that which accords with fact. It's what really happened. The truth is reality. We know what truth is. The truth is so linked to Jesus that he can say, 14.6, John 14.6, I am the truth. John wants us to understand that truth cannot be apart from God. He is the truth. God is truth. So why is the incarnate word glorious? Well, because he is full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we see both the full expression and we see both bound up together. 
The two can never be separated, grace and truth. If the incarnate word is glorious because he is the full expression of grace and truth, and and these cannot be separated, then it stands to reason that you and I bring glory to God when we express grace and truth in our lives. That's how we manifest God's glory. He is all of these things. He's full of grace and truth. And as we embrace those things and then we participate in those things, we make much of Him. That's what it means to glorify God. Is to put those things on public display, as Piper would say. Of course, the greatest challenge is not that we would not that we would express grace or truth. The greatest challenge is that we would express and display grace and truth. That's our challenge. If you were to place grace and truth on two ends of a spectrum, where would you land? The grace side? You know, where would you, what, what, what side of the log would you fall off on? If you were naming a daughter, would you name her Karis? Or Aletheia? You know, grace or truth? It's a Greek lesson for the day. <laughs> I'm not sure about you, but I love grace people. I love those people. They're pleasant, they're welcoming, they're forgiving, they don't make demands, they accept me for who I am. So I love grace people. The truth is, though, I need truth people in my life, I need those people as well. They're admirable. They're easy for me to look up, look up to. They have convictions. They help me to understand what's right and what's wrong. And so I need truth people as well. You probably sense an exhortation coming. <laughs> and you're right. If you're on the truth side, we need to step towards grace. And if you're on the grace side, well, you know you need to step towards truth. I think we see that. You and I need truth. You and I need grace, but even more, we need Jesus. Only in Jesus do we find the perfect balance of grace and truth, and this is why, this is my first reason why the incarnate word is glorious. Verse 15, we find a parenthetical statement. Interesting, we don't see those oftentimes in Scripture, but it's right there in the text. Verse 15 says this, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Seems like a little bit of a diversion from the direction John is moving, but it's not. That's sacred scripture. Uh, But in this verse, we have a second reason why the incarnate word is glorious, and it's this. He is preexistent. He is preexistent. Last week, we were introduced to John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8. You might have remembered that. John 1, 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear bear witness about the light. In his, that is in John's inspired response to God, John became a specific witness for Jesus. He was a forerunner. In verse 15, it says, he cried out. His role was that of a herald crying out publicly or testifying that Messiah was coming. What's most important about this verse at this point for us is the quote from John the Baptist. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
That's where I'm drawing this point. He was preexistent. In this case, it appears that John is commenting on the superiority or status of Jesus. The ESV translation has, has chosen that word rank. And so it seems like what John is talking about there is superiority or, superiority or status. And of course, Jesus is of higher rank than John. I don't think we would argue that. Yet, I'm not sure actually that's exactly the focus of John's words here. I think he might have actually something other and something else in mind. And, and so I think this word is, is probably more, has more to do with time than rank which is why I've chosen to phrase the outline this way. He was preexistent. And so we have a kind of a riddle here from John. He who comes after me came from before me. Why? Well, because he was before me, because he was preexistent. So even though John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus, Jesus comes first because he is the incarnate word, which is an important point in John's day where chronological priority almost always meant superiority. It would have been significant for him to say this. If you were older, you were superior by birth, and the younger almost always served the older. You remember Jesus' words in John eight fifty eight. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, which is a claim at preexistence. This truth about Christ that he was preexistent is a, is a very lofty thought, indeed. But is it practical? Is it practical? How, how, can the incarnate, how can the incarnate word's glorious preexistence affect us this week, this afternoon, even now? What does it do for us? You know I'm going to take a stab at it. <laughs> if Christ is preexistent, if he was in the beginning, then he's timeless. That's a natural implication of being preexistent. He's timeless. He was before creation. He existed outside of time. That seems to be even a loftier thought. I, I can't think of anything without thinking about it in the measurement of time. It's really hard to do because I'm in time. I'm trapped in it. We're trapped in it. We might say Christ is timeless, eternal. He's preexistent. I think we can illustrate this using a sea and a river. You live in Bakersfield, and so you're familiar with the Kern River. You know about the Kern River. All right. The Kern River is that river that flows down from the Sierra Nevada mountains, and it's a major water source here in Bakersfield. Now, that river has been diverted a lot. Amen. It has been diverted a lot. In fact, it's hardly a river around here. It's really a dry river bottom is what I see. Although if you go to the east side, you can actually see that there is water in that river. And so that's kind of the point of the illustration. Rivers are always changing. They're always moving. They're susceptible to factors like heavy rains, flooding, and if Dick Meyer were here, I would just say civil engineers. <laughs> But he can listen and hear that. Rivers can shift their locations. Even their destinations can change. Well, friends, the Pacific Ocean is not that way. The Pacific Ocean is not that way. You know it. You live in Bakersfield, and so what do you do? If you live in Bakersfield, you vacation at the coast. That's what people in Bakersfield do. I've been here three years, and I've learned that. 
Get out of the heat. Get away from the Kern River and go to the coast and see the Pacific Ocean. Year after year, you return to the coast, and what do you see? You see the same ocean. You see the same ocean. Why? Well, it's fixed. It's stable. It never moves. It's always there. You can count on it. It's not going anywhere. Furthermore, a river could never swallow the sea. If they ever come in contact, the ocean always swallows the river. Always. The ocean is going to win every time. So what do you think God is more like? Is God more like the Kern River or the Pacific Ocean? Should be an easy answer. God is more like an ocean than a river. And so Charnock says he described God as an unbounding sea of being. I like Matthew Barrett here. He writes, While the river of time is always changing and developing, the ocean of the divine re- remains constant, consistent, and invariable. I think there's some application there for us. These are, of course, creative ways to illustrate Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As helpful as the ocean is to use as a metaphor for God, there's nothing or nobody like our God. These are just pictures. They fail at some point. There's nothing so fixed, nothing so stable, nothing so secure as our God. So why is the incarnate word glorious? He's preexistent. He's preexistent. Now, verses 16 and 17, we find a third reason for why the incarnate word is glorious, and it's this. He gives his fullness. He gives his fullness. John 1, 16 and 17. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 16 really kind of picks up where verse 14 left off. We have that verse 15 that's in parentheses and then kind of jump right right back into that thought. What does John have in mind when he speaks of fullness? He's speaking about the fullness of Christ, of the Word, of the Logos. Well, Colossians 1.19 says this about Jesus, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Certainly a statement about the deity of Christ. Revelation 5.12 speaks of the riches of the Lamb. Ephesians 1.7 speaks of the riches of His grace. I really like this paragraph from, from Luther. Luther illustrates the fullness of Christ using a spring. I think this is helpful. The spring is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything. No matter how much we draw, but remains an infinite fountain of all grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives of the water that springs into eternal life. Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up ten worlds, just as a hundred thousand lights may be lit from one light and not detract from it, just as a learned man is able to make a thousand others learned and the more he gives, the more he has, so is Christ, our Lord an infinite source of all grace so that if the whole world were draw, would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, yet I would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over full of grace, full of grace. Praise the Lord. 
And John can say that we have all received. We have all received. We have nothing, and Christ has an inexhaustible abundance. You and I are like the sick with our mouths wide open waiting for a medicine from the divine physician. We're like a beggar with outstretched palms awaiting alms from the Almighty. Paul writes, What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. John the Baptist said, A person cannot receive any one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Therefore, with a white-knuckle grip around the fullness of Christ in one hand and our inability in the other, we discover what Christ has given. Grace upon grace. You almost could translate this grace instead of grace. It's like grace somehow overruns itself and, and then there's just more grace. It's like this unbounding sea, as Sharnak said, of grace. A.T. Robertson wrote, As the days come and go, a new supply takes the place of the grace already bestowed. As wave follows wave upon the shore, grace answers to grace. Just more and more grace. Are there any, are there any sinners here? <laughs> we have received grace upon grace. Any sorrowful? grace upon grace. Anybody with a heavy heart? That's how much grace there is. It's grace upon grace. Lay down your burdens and take up grace upon grace. First Peter 5, 7, a familiar verse. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's God's grace that makes us spiritually rich, that consoles us amid the sadness, that strengthens us in all our weaknesses, that gives us power and fullness of life. An older commentator writes, Grace is a treasure to which none others can be compared. Carry together all the treasures of earth, and all together they will not balance what lies in this one word, grace. Grace is the blood-red mark which cancels the handwriting against us, the star of hope which sends its rays into the earth life, earth life darkened by sin, the ladder which leads us upward, the immovable, immovable pillar which shall stand, the staff to which we cling in our weakness, the guide who leads us safely through sorrow and death into the open portals of eternal blessedness, end quote. I think of the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And you know this last stanza. Though many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come, t'is grace hath brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. For from him, for from his fullness, we all received grace upon grace. I hope you can say amen. Now, verse 17, we, we find an explanation as to why Jesus is better than Moses. 
Why is Jesus better than Moses? Verse 17 says this, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No doubt Israel was blessed because they possessed the law. It was a good thing. Yet it was not the fullness from which they might receive grace upon grace. It wasn't a part of the law. We know that the law served to reveal God's holy will and the depth of our lost condition. The law was, as Galatians 3.24 says, a guardian until Christ came. And the law is filled with types and shadows that point to something greater. They point to something fuller. Yet the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Which I might say, might add, that this is the first time John actually uses that title, Jesus Christ. As we've already discovered, grace and truth are embodied in Jesus Christ and came in his incarnation. God did not bring another prophet to tell us about grace and truth. He, he spoke to us in his Son, as Hebrews said, who is grace and truth. If someone were to open up the door to your heart, take a little peek inside of your heart, look into the kingdom of your heart, who would they find on the throne? Would Moses be on the throne of your heart? Or would Jesus be on the throne of your heart? Does your heart cherish a law that can be mastered? Does it leap for joy at do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Some of us are drawn to law because we we can draw a circle around it. It's clear to us. We know the rules. We know when others cross the line. We're drawn to the law. I would submit to you that Jesus has called us to something much different than that. To find grace on the throne of your heart, to open up that little window and to look into your heart and to find grace in your heart is to find something of an adventure. I think living this way is, is an adventurous life. Why, why do I say that? Well, it's to acknowledge that the only mastery is Christ. You can't master it. Christ is the only master. He's the one that measures up. When we're on the adventure of grace, we do these crazy things. We actually count others more significant than ourselves. We, we look out for the interest of others. We overlook an offense. That's an adventure. We confess an offense. That's maybe an even greater adventure. We lose our lives for those we love. And for those we don't. The adventure of grace means we give to those in need. The adventure of grace means we follow Jesus when we have nowhere to lay our head. It means we let the dead bury the dead, as Jesus said. It means we put our hands to the plow, we put our hand to the plow, and we never look back. I'd say that's an adventure. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so, 
Why is the incarnate word glorious? Well, he's full of grace and truth. He's preexistent. He gives his fullness. And we have a fourth reason in verse 18. And it's this. He is the very revelation of God. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He is the very revelation of God, our fourth reason. Now, there's no transition here, no conjunction. It's, it's, there's something very fast about the way John writes this. It's like we're forced into this verse. No one has ever seen God. This is, of course, true. And I think most people don't ever think it's possible to see God. We're not arguing with John here. You're right. No one has seen God. Exodus 33:20. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Yahweh says. Deuteronomy 4:12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. To the Hebrew mind, no one could see God. But the Greeks agree. Plato said, Never man and God can meet. Whatever intimate experiences people have had with God, there's something lesser than seeing Him as we see each other. Yet there's one who has made Him known. The one who revealed God to us is described as the only or unique God who is at the Father's side. This is the Word, the Logos. This is Jesus Christ. When John says that Jesus is at the Father's side, he's using a, a Hebrew idiom. In fact, if you have your ESV Bible open, there's a little footnote there, uh, at least there is in mine. He's using an, an idiom there. He is in the bosom of the Father. This expression, or this expression uh, expresses the deepest intimacy possible in human life. The expression is used of mother and child, of husband and wife, or two friends that are in complete communion with one another. It's used in all those contexts. When John uses the phrase to describe the relationship between God and Jesus, he is suggesting complete un uninterrupted intimacy. He's in the bosom of the Father. Lenski again, they do not only see each other, know or speak with each other, they are in each other's embrace. This is only one step removed from the word of Jesus himself when he says that he and the Father are one. So it is quite natural that it's Jesus who makes him known because he has this kind of relationship with God. He declares him. He expounds him. He sets God forth completely. Quite simply, he explains him, which is really what the text is saying. He's explaining who God is. Jesus is the explanation of God. He's the answer to the question, who is God? Or what is God like? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is so intimate with the Father, so one with God, that he is the revelation of God to men. Barclay writes, In Jesus Christ, the distant, unknowable, invisible, unreachable God has come to men, and God can never be a stranger again. God can never be a stranger again. The incarnate word is glorious because he is the very revelation of God to us. And so I believe we have the answer to our question in these four reasons. Why is the incarnate word glorious? You could probably find ten reasons in between each of mine. 
I'm sure you could. As we conclude this section of John, this opening prologue, uh, verses 1 through 18, this is our third message in this section. I've kind of captured this uh, section in this title, Word Made Flesh. Uh, as, as we finish this up, I, I, my prayer is that you're not a stranger to God, or that God is not a stranger to you. We've learned plenty of things about God in the past three weeks. We've discovered the worth of Jesus. Uh, in the very opening verses of this gospel, we learn that Jesus is God, that He is our Creator, even our very life. Last week, we, dis- we discovered that Jesus is the true light that shines into the darkness. His light is what illuminates the plan of redemption. Jesus is the Word, the Logos. He is the life and the light of men. Jesus is the God-man. He is full of grace and truth. This morning we've we've discovered He is preexistent. He is the fullness of God. He is the very revelation of God. All this is true. All this is true. We've learned it the past three weeks. But He still may be foreign to you. I'm going to close with an illustration. If all Jesus is were to somehow parade before you as a crowd of people. You you have in your mind a a vast crowd of people walking in front of you, and every person in that crowd represents something about Jesus, something about who He is. How many of those people in that crowd could you call by name? Would it be a sea of strangers? Could you look out in the crowd and cry out, Advocate, Almighty, Anointed, Bread of Life, Chief Shepherd, Cornerstone, Emmanuel, Friend of Sinners, Guide, Head of the Church, High Priest, Holy One of God, Lamb of God. Could you look out and cry, And notice, Lord of Lords, Master, Messiah, Man, as we've seen today, Physician, Redeemer, Righteousness, Resurrection, Son of David, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of Mary, Son of the Most High, Way, (laughs) Wonderful from Isaiah. How about the word? Two sentences. If, if Christ be as glorious as John suggests, then you and I ought not find a stranger in the crowd. Or, if Christ is as glorious as John suggests, we ought to be so eager to call every part of him our friend. Amen?